You're listening to The Way Home with Daniel Darling, a proud member of the Venom Audio Network. Hello and welcome again back to The Way Home Podcast. I'm so glad you're joining me today. Folks, we have a great podcast lined up for you today. I am super excited about this conversation. Uh, Someone whose writing I have long admired, who has uh, really shaped me in many ways, particularly at key moments in my life, uh, Philip Yancey. Uh, And if chances are, if you're... uh, listening to this, you have read a Philip Yancey book or have you come across something he's written. Uh, He's known mostly for uh, his books like Where is God When It Hurts, Uh, Soul Survivor, What's So Amazing About Grace, Uh, The Jesus I Never Knew, and many others. For me personally, there was a few books that have really shaped me. One is his book that I mentioned, Soul Survivor, where he takes snapshots of different Christians whose, whose faith really shaped him. And I think of the chapter in there on Martin Luther King and the chapter in there on Dr. Paul Brand. By the way, his work with Dr. Paul Brand uh, is contained in a one-volume book called, I believe it's called In His Image. And I highly, highly recommend it. The work that he did uh, in chronicling the work of Dr. Paul Brand, who lived in India among lepers for many, many years and pioneered some life-saving vaccines and treatments that have really helped people alleviate suffering. Paul Brand's work on pain and the problem of pain uh, is really very insightful in just how our bodies um, react to pain, how God uses pain in our lives. So Yancey writes with such uh, clarity on this stuff. One of his books that I read recent, went back and re- reread recently is his book on prayer. And essentially the whole thesis of the book is like, why should we pray? Does it even work? And just a fantastic uh, book in that way. Uh, he's one of the, I think, best wordsmiths uh, in the Christian writing world. He can turn a phrase and craft a sentence better than almost anybody. And as a young writer, he was someone whose work I really admired and looked up to. Um, so I think you're going to enjoy this conversation, very wide-ranging. We talk about the state of the evangelical church. We talk about writing as a discipline. Uh, we talk about his own journey. Uh, several years ago, he had a significant car accident. He thought he was going to die. Uh, he also is an avid outdoorsman, likes to climb tall mountains. So many really interesting things that I think you'll enjoy with this conversation with Phil Yancey. Well, I'm uh, glad to be here uh, on the Way Home podcast with someone that I've admired for a long time and whose work I've read uh, for for many years, uh, Philip Yancey. Uh, Philip, thank you for joining me today. I'm glad to be with you. I'm trying to remember the first book of yours that I read. I think it may have been, I'm not sure, I was thinking about that this morning as I was preparing uh, for this interview. It may be Where Is God When It Hurts, but I think think it may have been Soul Survivor, actually. Oh, wow. And then I went back and started okay. reading some of your other work, the Jesus I Never Knew, uh, and really, really 
appreciated uh, your work with Dr. Paul Brand and, in fact, went back and reread last year the republished um, double feature book, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made. It's so good and so rich, and I'm so thankful for it. And then, uh, obviously, uh, a couple of years ago, I read uh, your book on prayer and uh, read Rumors of Another World. Anyways, I've been reading your stuff for a long time and uh, always just really uh, admired you as a writer, as a crafter, as a wordsmith. And uh, before we get into the topics of, of some of your work, I just would love for you to share a little bit about your passion for writing. And um, has that always been like f- for you in your life? Was that something that you enjoyed uh, as a child, is it something you picked up as you got into college? Like, have you always loved words and loved crafting words? I have. Books really were the window to the real world for me. I was raised in a very restricted environment uh, in a fundamentalist church in the South and had the sense that, uh, well, we, we were a tight little group. There were about 120 of us, and, and we thought we were the only ones going to be in heaven. It was a small place. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah. uh, gradually, some of the assumptions of that church began to break down, especially this was early in the days of the civil rights movement. And it was a, it was a racist church. We were taught racism directly from the pulpit. We all believed it. And, and then when I got out into the real world, I realized they had misrepresented reality to me in a, in a very egregious way. And, and books were part of what broke down my own prejudice. Uh, books like Black Like Me, where the same guy uh, took some chemicals and turned his skin dark and was treated entirely differently. Native Son, Autobiography of Mal- Malcolm X. You know, these were eye-opening books for me. And literature are, in other ways just brought me out of my little tight, constricted environment and introduced me to a, a wider world. So, My first job, I was in graduate school at Wheaton College, and my very first job was with Campus Life magazine. They figured if we're a campus magazine, we should have a campus person, you know, so they hired me as a part-time stringer, and I really learned to write on the job. It fit my personality. I'm an introvert, uh, am a little suspicious, so I kind of step back and metabolize things before saying anything, and Writing was ideal for that. It gave me the time and the isolation to make up my own mind about things. And I started exploring my faith. And in a sense, all of my books ever since have been my way of exploring my faith, to, to review my past, to try to figure out what, what it's worth keeping and what should I jettison. So, for instance, you mentioned the book that Jesus I Never Knew. Well, I was, I was raised with Jesus all around me. But the Jesus, mm-hmm. I believe now, is a very different Jesus than the version that I was taught in that church. And writing has given me the opportunity to go through piece by piece, pick up parts of my past, parts of my thinking and my beliefs, and uh, scrutinize them, subject, subject them to that kind of scrutiny so that I come up the other end with a new understanding. I mean, one of the ways that I love that you've always written, and actually... I, Hmm. I th- I think now that I think about it, I first encountered you in the pages of Christianity Today, um, kind of reading reading your columns there, and uh, I came out of a uh, you know my background wasn't 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 the same, but it was it was a little bit more fundamentalist uh, than I you know am comfortable with, obviously. But what your your work was really helpful to thinking through all that 
all that. Um, but in Soul Survivor, particularly, particularly, there's a couple chapters in there that really were really meaningful to me. Uh, your profile of Martin Luther King Jr., for instance, and you talking about your own history growing up in the South and uh, being taught racism, seeing racism. You know, as, as someone, I grew up in the Midwest and sort of, you know, we, I didn't learn a ton of the history of the civil rights movement. Our, our posture was kind of simply like, that was the South. Right. We were different. You know, um, things are better now. Uh, I don't think it was intentional. It was just kind of that was just kind of our what we were mm-hmm. taught. So reading that really opened my eyes to say, "Oh wow, I missed a lot of this." Um, and so it was it was incredibly helpful. And then I, uh, your profile of Dr. Paul Brandt was just eye opening as well. And so I just want to want to thank you for those. Um, I, I guess I want to ask you too, like your writing process. And one of the things when I read your work is just. There's such care taken to the craft of words and to the phrases that you're creating and uh, the the way that they sound on the ear when when I, you're reading them. Uh, I I guess I want to ask like what is your uh, secret to writing or what is your your method? You know, all these years of of, of putting words on paper. When I used to write articles for Christianity Today, I would usually divide it into a, about a week. I would set aside one week for an article. And that's five days. So the first two days, I would spend researching an outline. And I, I love that process. Sometimes I would call up an interview. Sometimes I'd spend time in libraries. Sometimes I'd go online and fill in the blanks. Uh, but that process was a lot of fun. And by the time I finished, I had an outline that I thought was going to tell me exactly where I was going to write and, and in what order. Then that middle day, and I won't use my middle finger here, but that middle day <laughs> was when all the pain was, the blank computer screen. And here I think I know what the article, what shape the article is going to take, and it, it never does. The other side of the brain takes over, the right side. And what I thought was going to be a little diversion actually turns into the, the entire article. So that's the middle day. And then the last two days, I clean up what I've written. And that middle day is where all the pain is, and I just try to get something down on paper that I can deal with later. And then the two days is very relaxing. I sit back, and I figure I can I can find ways to make words better, sentences better, but probably won't make them any worse. You know, I, I've been at it long enough. I can tell when something's not working. So I think that's the key to spend twice as much time polishing as you do composing. A lot of people, and I, I felt the same way when I was young, a lot of people think, well, I'll just put it down on paper and and there it is. <laughs> that's my inspiration. Well, no, that's mm-hmm. the beginning. And after that, you need to really spend time. How can I make this sentence better? And you mentioned the, the sound. Very often when I'm writing an article or even an entire book, I'll read it through aloud because I catch things reading aloud, just the poetry, the rhythm of it that I would never catch reading, you know, internally. So edit, edit, edit. <laughs> I guess if I had uh, if I had my three rules of writing, it would be that those three: edit, edit, edit. Just keep going over the material, trying to make it better. Hmm. I'm curious. When you started writing for Campus Life, did you ever envision the career that you would have? 
best-selling books, having your books published in multiple languages, selling millions of copies, winning numerous awards. Like when you were first starting out writing, could you see ahead of, of all that God would do through your through your writing? No, not at all. I um, thought I would be an investigative journalist. Wouldn't that be great? You know, to do these exposés of people. And uh, I, I tried that a little bit. Some of the early articles. Uh, in Christianity Today were things I did on people like uh, Jim Baker and the PTL Club. And and I, I got tired of that pretty quickly. It takes a long time to write an article. And if you're an investigative reporter, you have to spend a lot of time around jerks. You know? <laughs> and I didn't want to do that. I wanted to spend time around people <laughs> who, would, uh, who, who I could learn from, who would make me a better person. You mentioned the book Soul Survivor of the 25 books I've written. That's my favorite by far because I got to write about my heroes, people I wanted to I wanted to be like, people I wanted to emulate. And they were the ones who helped form me, helped form my faith. And uh, so I was as surprised as anybody when my first book, really, Where Is God When It Hurts, took off. I started getting letters from readers, and they had questions that made me think I should write another book, which eventually became Disappointment with God. And at the same time, I met this Dr. Paul Brand. He had rich material. I saw other books there. And and early on, I would just try to write them on weekends. I would bicycle to a local pancake shop and sit there with my yellow legal pad and write a chapter each each Saturday morning. Mm. And then I learned uh, you can't write good books doing that. You needed to really... I needed to give myself completely to them. And ultimately, I left campus life, which was a hard thing to do. I learned a lot there. I loved the people there. And it was a thriving magazine at the time. But writing took over, and I needed to devote myself fully to it. I want to talk about your work with Dr. Paul Brand. I really, if for people listening, want to encourage people to get uh, the, uh, the book uh, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made that was just re-released, which is got two of uh, Philip Yancey's books in there, but your work with Dr. Paul Brand, really, you know, I've, I've written some and have done on, on the image of God and what that means, but when, I remember when I first read it, I mean, the chapter in Soul Survivor, but then obviously the lo- lengthier works you've done, um, just, just talk about him for a minute and how transformative he was both in your life and in, in, in your writing, but also in just helping to shape your view of what it means to be a Christian. Hmm. He was a great man. I grew up without a father. My father died of polio when I was just one year old, so I had no real father figure. I had some relatives, who, uncles who would fill in a little bit here and there, but not in any deep way. And Dr. Brand became kind of a father figure for me. I met him when I was doing the book, Where Is God When It Hurts?, He was living in uh, Louisiana at the time, working at a leprosy hospital. He had spent most of his working career in India. So here was this silver-haired British surgeon, and I was a a young punk with hair out to here, (laughs) 40 years younger than he. And somehow we just struck it off. I was fascinated by his stories of Uh, life in India and the individual leprosy patients he worked with. And I was also not just fascinated, I was moved by by the example of faith that he gave me. He was as as bright and deep and rich and 
well-educated a person as I've ever met. Um, and yet he spent, he had spent a good 25 years among about the lowliest people on the entire planet. And those are people who we call Dalits today. They're part of the untouchable caste who had leprosy. They were rejected from their families, from their villages. And there was only one orthopedic surgeon in the world <laughs> working with leprosy and 12 million people had leprosy. So he came up with remarkable discoveries, but I was more impressed by the, by just that example of a person giving away their lives. The most commonly repeated statement that Jesus made was, you don't find your life by acquiring more and more, you find, you, you find it by giving it away. And that's what Dr. Brand had done. And what I saw in him was it didn't make him less of a person, it made him more of a person. He was joyful and grateful at the same time as being humble and giving. So different than some of the arrogant people I had interviewed <laughs> over the years. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to know him. And the other thing he did was pull the physical world, the material world, and the spiritual world together. So those books were unlike anything that I had read before, and they came out of chapel talks that he gave. Here he spent his his world, his, his daily, uh, working with the human body, working with cells and the heart and nerve cells and the eye. And, and at the same time, as a Christian, he's thinking, oh, this is used as an analogy of the body of Christ. So can I take that analogy further than, say, the Apostle Paul did in 1 Corinthians 12? What richness can I learn from this combination? Because the same God who designed the physical body also intentionally drew us together and called us the body of Christ, the body of his son. We are the visible rep representation of what God is like. And I, I'd never seen that kind of um, integration of science and faith before. And for a young writer, it was just the greatest thing, like giving me a palette saying, paint the human body you know, in words. Mm. Uh, so I spent a lot of time in libraries there, learned a lot, enough to get a medical degree, although no, nobody would let me practice on them. And, <laughs> <laughs> and then um, got to contribute what I could about his stories and my own theological understanding to flesh out that combination, that integration. Yeah, one of the, I, I love the way that you worked through that, both the, the talking about the body of Christ in a way that I've never, that had never read before, just, you know, juxtaposing it with his actual work on uh, leprosy patients and his work on surgery and healing and restoring and, and how the body works. But I think one of the biggest gifts that your work has given to us is really thinking well about pain. Hmm. And not just, you know, I, I think of your book, The Problem of Pain, but we think of pain as a problem, but also as, in some ways, a gift, as a signal that something's wrong, and uh, how to process and think through that. Um, uh, like, I, I think, in, in your mind, is that one of the most significant um, achievements that you've made in terms of your writing, helping people and Christians particularly think well about pain? I've been writing a memoir, which will be coming out in October, a book called Where the Light Fell, and I tell some of the stories. And as I reflected on my own life, the two themes that kept coming up in my writing are pain and grace, those, those two themes. Mm -hmm. 
the pain uh, started with my very first book, Where Is God When It Hurts, continued through books like Disappointment with God and um, The Question That Never Goes Away more recently. And then in this pandemic, I took a different project about suffering. I took an old book by John Donne. John Donne was a great English poet and the dean of St. Paul's Cathedral. And they had pandemics in, in their day that are worse than what we're going through with the uh, coronavirus. They were facing the Black Death that killed mm. about a third of London. And Dunn fell ill. He thought he had the Black Death, the bubonic plague, and so did his doctors, but it turns out he didn't. So he kept a journal, and it became some of the most famous words in, in the English language. For whom the bell tolls, ask not for whom the bell tolls, the bell tolls for you. No man is an island. And it has rich, deep material on suffering and pain, wrestling with God. But it's, it also includes this kind of weird science. In those days, they would treat people with pigeons, re, removing the vapors from your head or uh, bleeding you, you know, to try to, uh, the bloodletting technique that, that uh, doctors had back then. And also very complicated sentences. So I went through and redid that in a modern paraphrase, kind of what Eugene Peterson did to the Bible in the message and published that recently, Ending in Crisis. So you're absolutely right. Pain and suffering, it's something every Christian struggles with. How could a good God allow that? And to what degree can we count on God for help when we go through hard times? Those questions we all struggle with. And then the, also the, the theme of grace, uh, the book I wrote around the same time as the Jesus that I never knew was What's So Amazing About Grace, and that's still in print, and in fact, have just released a, a new video series so that you can study it in small groups. I, that's one of my favorite books. I I, uh, I loved loved reading that book. Uh, What's so amazing about grace? I remember after nine eleven, right after nine eleven, you had a, a particularly important ministry that a lot of people were suffering or were were grappling with the question of evil. And where is God in all of this? And uh, can you describe kind of that moment? Uh, I, I think I distinctly remember that you you visiting New York City and your book being distributed to a lot of people or re-released or something like that. But I just remember you having a, a pretty significant uh, opportunity to kind of uh, speak into people's pain after 9-11. You're right. It was such a stunning moment for all of us to be attack like that and, and just the horror of sitting there uh, with my cup of co coffee watching this building collapse and explode and and knowing that thousands of people had just died right before my eyes. And the whole nation kind of paused. Uh, church attendance went up. The New York Times magazine, magazine and newspaper, they would hire pastors and rabbis to write their op-ed pages, something I hadn't seen in a while. And Various people were coming up with kind of new material on, on what's going on and how is God involved in all this. And I had this book, Where's God When It Hurts? It had been out for uh, more than 20 years at that point. And I called my publisher and said, I've already struggled with these issues. Can we can we come up with one way to get get it across to a broader broader group of people, people walking through airports, people 
just thumbing through a bookstore who maybe have never bought a Christian book before. And so rather quickly, they came up with a mass market paperback. All proceeds went to the American Red Cross, and that was listed on the cover. And Zondervan tells me, within days, I mean, it took about a week to print this book. That's all. Within days, there were huge Walmart semi-tractor trailer trucks backed up at their loading dock, and they were forklifting thousands of copies of Where Is God When It Hurts. And we just we got the word out as fast as possible. And I remember walking through airports and seeing that and seeing people stop. Because when you're flying in a plane in those days, that was a kind of a scary thing. It could happen again. And uh, I got a lot of letters in response to that. And, and it, it felt good just to be able to contribute something. If I had to summarize what our role is as Christians, I turned to Second um, Corinthians 1, where Paul talks about the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. And that's his description of God. And he says, the comfort that we have already received, we are called to go and shed abroad to people who don't have that comfort, who need it. And at moments of crisis like that or a pandemic, then I think that that's the main thing that Christians should do. We should look for ways to spread abroad the comfort that we've already received from the Father of Compassion. I, I remember that moment. And, you know, it's one of those things where you wrote that book not knowing how it would be used, right? And you probably think that about everything that you write, that right. this is right. what the Lord has put on my heart, this is what is before me. But you can't really game plan how it will be received or who it will impact, right? Yes, I write my books for myself. I, there's a problem I'm trying to figure out. And the problem of pain and suffering is right at the top. It's a huge one that we all face. Yeah. So I'm not really, I know some writers will tell you they're sitting there and either addressing a crowd or finding one person that they write to. And I don't do that. I, I just, I've got a problem. I've got to solve it to keep going to understand how these things work. And then later I'm surprised to find, oh, other people had the same question, same issue. And and are open to hearing what I have to say about it. Mm. I, I really can sense that when I'm reading your books, that one of the things I like about it is I feel like we're walking with you as you're kind of wrestling through and with a difficult topic, as you're sort of turning it over on every side to figure out how to think about it. Um, when I read Prayer, Does It Make a Difference? I really felt that way, that you're wrestling with some very heavy and difficult topics of God's sovereignty and, you know, his power and why doesn't he stop evil and what's our responsibility. And uh, rather than kind of being a top down, here's, you know, 10 things that the Bible says about it, which those books can be helpful too. We're kind of walking with you through as you're, as you're sort of processing through it. Uh, it seems like you write that way by design. Well, I tell people uh, the dirty secret of writing is that uh, I and some other authors I know, we don't write books about things we know. We write books about things we don't know. Mm. <laughs> so when I write a book about prayer, it's not because, oh, I'm a master of prayer and I have these principles to share mm. with you. It's like, it's more, uh, I know I'm supposed to pray, but it never really is satisfying for me and I feel guilty about it and it doesn't make a lot of sense. How can I figure this thing out? And so when I face something like that, oh, I know, I'll write a book about it. <laughs> and then I can spend the time necessary to do research, to interview people, to learn from people who maybe don't have that negative experience with prayer. And in the process of writing the book, hopefully 
uh, I'm changed as much as anybody. It's a it's a style I call personal pilgrimage, and I feel, frankly, I feel grateful and and blessed, and that I'm able to put on paper what I'm going through in my real life. So the things I'm struggling with now, I'm writing about now at the same time. I don't resolve them first. I resolve them through the very process of writing mm-hmm. and don't always resolve it. Sometimes I leave a lot of things open. <laughs> you have a remarkable story, as you mentioned, of kind of growing up in a very toxic uh, church environment, toxic version of Christianity. And yet you you are not not just still a Christian, but a, but a, a fruitful Christian who knows the word and has uh, been trying to walk through, walk this journey for all these years, you know, today there's a lot of um, conversation, right, about evangelical Christianity, about people leaving the faith because they're disenchanted with what they see in terms of uh, hypocritical behavior of leaders or even, you know, bad behavior Christian leaders or being in a, a toxic environment. I, I wonder, you know, what was it? I mean, obviously this is, this is a larger question that people need to answer by reading your books, but what is it that kept you uh, walking with Jesus, uh, even though you saw poor and have seen poor representations of what it means to be a Christian? Boy, that word evangelical gets increasingly hard to claim, <laughs> doesn't it? Because of exactly what you mentioned. It, it, and the way it's used by, by media, general media, uh, they view evangelicals as these kind of racist rednecks out there, um, in a political way, not not a theological way. But the word means good news. And I guess the one of the things that keeps me kind of in the camp is that I have been traveling a lot, 85 different countries, and I've gone and reported on people. Dr. Brand helped me get, get me into that. Some of the first trips I took were with him to India and to England. And I've made it a point to go to places where my books are published. And there I see the church on the ground doing what it's supposed to be doing. There's a trail in every place I've been where missionaries have been. You find orphanages and clinics and hospitals and people digging wells and people who are fighting sexual trafficking and I and visiting people in prison. And that's what we're called to do. We're called to... Um, as Jesus said, go to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, and give them water, feed them, visit the prisoners, take care of those who are orphaned. I've seen that. And these are people who were humbly out of the spotlight. Because I've seen so much of that, it really does balance off the kinds of things that are salacious, that fill the gossip sheets of the newspapers over here. And that's true of good churches in the United States. Wherever I go, there are people who are organizing Bible studies for prisoners or um, putting together sandwiches for the homeless, you know, acts like that, acts of genuine care and love. And that is what the church should be doing. And as a reporter, I've just seen it over and over again. Mm -hmm. I I love how you write on uh, is on your website, but you've I've heard you say it in other v- places too that you feel like called to write to people who are on the, as you call the borderlands of faith. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yes, uh, for years I was in the borderlands of faith. I I saw the church. I saw the 
the people I had grown up with, and I'm, I wasn't ready to commit to those kinds of people, to that actual uh, understanding of what our faith should be. But I wasn't ready to give it away either. When I would look at people who threw it all away, they didn't live the kind of life that I wanted to live. They were either self-indulgent or selfish. And it was people like Dr. Brand and, and the others that I detailed in my writing that pulled me and I wanted to find what is the secret. And as I did that, you know, it's easy to get in the, inside this bubble because in America, at least, not in other countries so much, but in America, there's this industry, the, the Christian industry. We have our own publishing companies. We have our own uh, colleges and universities. And it's easy to hang around people who think like you all the time. And that's not healthy. And as I started writing for other publications, many of them secular, I had to think like, not my people, but I had to think outside the box. And gradually I became called, I think, to address the people in the borderlands, kind of caught in the middle, feeling this wistful desire for faith, but maybe they've been wounded by the church. Maybe they're skeptical about uh, science or some issue that the church handles in a way they don't like. And it's those kind of people that I like to kind of push either toward or away from, you know, it's just follow your own beliefs to where they will take you and, and be honest about it. But I like to reach out to them, uh, not as an insider, but as a person on the borderlands, because I've been there with them. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of uh, division right now in the evangelical church, you know, in the last couple of years, um, you know, over race issues, over how to handle COVID, of the, you know, presidential elections and all those things, just so many presenting issues that have divided Christians. What is your perspective on all that and kind of the state of the American church and the uh, kind of what do you see going forward? Well, it's very distressing to me, not just the church, but society in general. You've got two polar opposites that are shouting at each other. And I see very few people trying to be bridges between them. In Congress, issues are decided not on are they good for the country, but rather am I a Democrat or am I a Republican? All the Democrats are going to vote together. All the Republicans are going to vote together. There's no cross-fertilization. I don't see... I mean, I know there are various attempts, but they're not producing much fruit. Bills in Congress just get stuck, no matter who's president, whether it was a Republican or a Democratic administration. And in the church, more and more, um, it becomes kind of a silo. It distresses me, frankly, to see churches leading the charge for anti-masking and anti-vaccine and being suspicious of science. One of the beautiful things about this pandemic is the role that Francis Collins has played. Francis Collins is our director of the National Institutes of Health. He's a wonderful Christian. He gives his testimony in his book, The Language of God. And yet he's vilified. Uh, Tony Fauci is, Dr. Fauci is one of the people who report to Francis Collins and he gets hate mail every day from evangelicals. And it just makes me so sad that this divide between science, well-meaning people who are trying to do good for our country are 
are uh, misrepresented the way they often are. Surveys show that white evangelical Christians are the most susceptible to conspiracy theories like QAnon. And that really makes me sad as well. What's the future look like? We need some moral leadership. We've had some examples of immoral leadership, you know, but I would pray that a person like a a Billy Graham figure, he certainly provided that uh, service in the 1950s and 60s, just a a model figure who was a bridge person and, and calmed some of the hysteria. We need some people like that today who can who can reach out on both sides. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, lastly, I know you you have to you have to go, uh, and I'm so grateful for your time, and you've been so gracious with that. You uh, always you shared in your books that you have a love of hiking and the outdoors. So this is really a two part right. question. One, what does that do for you in terms of uh, hiking in the outdoors? It seems like it really kind of inspires some of your work and your writing. Uh, and number two, if you could talk a little bit, you had a you had a serious accident a few years ago, and you've written about that and how that kind of uh, shaped your faith as well. So maybe if you could talk about those two things. Yeah, so I think you grew up in uh, Chicago, Dan, and we spent some wonderful years there. We spent about 20 years in the Chicago area. It wasn't great for the encountering the natural right. world, however. I worked, in a basement, I worked in a basement office, and I'd see rats and pigeons, <laughs> and uh, that's about it, <laughs> walking by along with people's knees. And uh, so we just packed up one year and moved to the hills of Colorado. Uh, I live at about 7,200 feet overlooking Denver. Denver's about 2,000 feet below us, the Mile High City. And we live in a place with a lot of open land and a lot of animals. When we moved here, we started climbing some of the mountains, 14,000 feet mountains. There were 54 of them here. And eventually, my wife and I together climbed them all. It was a wonderful experience, especially when I'm doing a book like Prayer, you mentioned. Um, What we need for our spiritual sustenance is meditative time in beautiful surroundings, at least what I need. And hiking in the mountains gives me that. I can go with a book uh, or article idea that I've been struggling with and spend that time. And it's amazing how my subconscious goes to work and is fed by the natural surroundings around me. And when I come back, I'm refreshed and I'm ready to sit down and start writing. And I did have an experience, this was in 2007, where I had been speaking on the book Prayer in a neighboring state, New Mexico. I was driving back on a, on a wintry day, one of these windy mountain roads, hit a patch of ice and ended up uh, with a SUV I was driving, turning over and over five times, rolling down a cliff. I didn't know what my injury was, but some some folks who uh, were EMTs, emergency technicians, came pretty quickly, just happened to be on that same road, and stabilized me. And it turns out I had a broken neck. It was what they call a comminuted fracture, pretty high up C3 of the vertebrae. So there's C1, C2, C3. And uh, the doctor uh, came to me. I was strapped down on a bodyboard and said, um, uh, well, Philip, this is dangerous because you've got a lot of little chips of bone there. And what we're concerned about is that one of them may have punctured your carotid artery. 
We've got a jet standing by to fly you to Denver, but if that artery has been punctured between you and me, you won't make it to Denver. So here's a phone. You should call the people you love and just tell them goodbye, just in case. Wow. Wow. <laughs> you know, I'm just driving down the road and then uh, I'm facing death. And it was one of those moments. Um, I, I treasure that moment, actually, because I got to kind of review my life. I was in my 50s at the time, and it was a, a time to think, what should I be doing with the life that I have remaining? And also a reminder that that could happen to any of us. We all live precariously. We can't. We don't know if we'll be alive tomorrow. And I don't mean I don't mean to be morbid about it, but it was a good. It was just a good perspective to sit there, lie there. In my case, I was strapped down for seven hours, and reflect on what I had done with my life, who I did love, and and was was I ready for my life to end? What needed to happen before I was ready to die? So that was uh, that was a wake up call for sure. And obviously, I didn't die. That's why we're talking here now. But uh, hopefully, it did change uh, change me in, in important ways and really just bring eternal values right up into my face. Because uh, when you face death, wow. you do what, face what death. an experience. And then, and yet, after you recovered, you still continued to hike. So that's remarkable as well. Well, I had uh, of the 54. 14ers, we call them 14,000 foot mountains. I had climbed 51 of them. Hmm. And one thought I had when I'm lying there is I can't die yet. I've got three mountains left to climb. <laughs> <laughs> so after I got the neck brace off and got back into shape a little bit, even that very summer, I did the last three. So now I'm ready. Hmm. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. Well, uh, Philip Yancey, I just want to thank you for your time and thank you for your work and, um, Someone who was a young person reading your work really inspired me both as a Christian but as a writer to uh, to really uh, pursue my craft. Well, I just want to thank you for, for all of that. And um, thank you for joining me today. Uh, is there one last short little word you would give to anybody listening who might be looking at Philip Yancey and saying, I'd like to to write like he does. I'd like to have a writing career of some sort, uh, what what advice would you give them? The scene is so different than when I started out. I was all about print, you know, magazines and books and all that. And now it's primarily about social media. And that makes it harder because you have to develop your own audience, as it were. But it also makes it an amazing opportunity today so that any person listening could actually write something today that would be read in Indonesia and Germany and Iceland tomorrow. And that, that never happened in the history of the world, but it is true right now because social media does give us those outlets. So I would say uh, start out with anybody can do a blog, anybody can do a Facebook site. It's great training ground and, and you will get immediate feedback. People will post comments, they either like you or hate you, you know, and they'll let you know right away. So uh, although it's harder, it's harder to make a living these days because people think all content should be free. Mm. It's, it's an easier way to, to get the kind of feedback you need to know how to grow as a writer. Mm. Mm. That's good. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to this edition of the Way Home Podcast with Daniel Darling. For more information, you can visit danieldarling.com. If you do like this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast catcher. We also encourage you to rate and review so others can know about the podcast. You can follow me at at Dan Darling on Twitter or go to my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Daniel M. Darling. I also want to encourage you again to check out my latest book, Away With Words, and you can visit awaywithwordsbook.com. Thank you for listening again to The Way Home Podcast. This is a production of the National Religious Broadcasters. This podcast is part of the Edify Podcast Network. Edify is a faith-inspiring app that brings together thousands of the best Christian podcasts in one place for your listening enjoyment. Cut through the noise and grow your faith by diving into the world's top Christian podcasts today. Download the Edify app for free from the App Store or Google Play or by going to edify.app. That's E-D-I-F-I dot app.